This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. the Future of Finance podcast. And I am delighted to be joined by someone I've had the pleasure of getting to know quite well recently, a chap called Mark Makepeace. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Sam. Mark, we're going to talk about your career to begin with. And and I always tend to ask our participants to tell our listeners a little bit about their career journey and some of the key milestones. And particularly, I'm keen to hear about the formation of FTSE Russell. Everyone who's tuning into this will know, particularly given the name of the podcast, The Future of Finance, FTSE really was a powerhouse that became synonymous with capitalism and ultimately trust in the financial services sector. So I couldn't be more excited to have you on this and to be uncovering it today. And not least of all, because you've just released a book about the journey as well, titled FTSE, The Inside Story. Congratulations on the book. Tell us a little bit about the journey. Oh, thank you. And it has been a journey. And when you sort of look back, you begin to sort of experience the journey in a slightly different way. When you're in the journey, everything is in the moment. But when you do get a chance to reflect and write a book, you start to look back and rationalize things a little bit differently. So I try and remember that reflections are not always as accurate as when you're in that moment and having to deal with issues and and deal with all the challenges of how you grow. But I started my career really when I joined the London Stock Exchange for Big Bang. I was brought in at the exchange, really just at a clerk level, to help them in setting up the governance arrangements for the Big Bang project, which was deregulation of the city, which really opened up London to international competition. So the floor of the stock exchange, everything became electronic trading. Big American houses moved in and it really changed not just the trading practices, but the whole culture of London. It was an exciting time. So I I came in and I helped coordinate that. And I was lucky enough to, in the end, sort of be a sort of lead in seeing Big Bang Day itself. I coordinated the day there. And when it was all over, it was a a little bit, what do you do next? And I kicked my heels working in sort of various roles in the exchange, helping them put in place their strategy for the first sort of information services they were running. I helped in regulation, but I was really just kicking my heels thinking, you know, what do I do next? And then along came this opportunity that I got introduced to, which was FTSE. And at the time, nobody really believed that indexation would grow and become anywhere near as valuable and as powerful as it is today. But I started that journey. And I started that by reaching an agreement and trying to bring together the Financial Times and London Stock Exchange, because I just believe that you needed the collaboration of those important institutions in the city to sort of really give you a chance to try and create something that could be global and could be powerful and could compete with S&P and MSCI, who were already well established at that time. So that was the sort of thinking and the philosophy. And we started and we really were a startup. There were just nine of us in an empty office with an idea, an idea that somehow 
we could build a global business. It was exciting. But also at the time, I think everyone was a little bit petrified, thinking about, well, how on earth do we challenge these bigger players? And how do you take a small group of UK people and create a, a sort of global business? I mean, the scale of what's being created is is just truly incredible and in the influence as well. I mean, it's a, ultimately a story of how you and your innovators alongside you created a business that guides the fortunes of over $16 trillion worth of funds. And having read only a portion of the book so far, I'm a slow reader, there's many points through it and many influential people who've written notes on the book that talk about that influence and the trust that FTSE now commands. But before we start talking about the book, I started my career at Barclays Capital in a trading role. I'd love to know what that moment at the Big Bang was really like. And 1987 was the year I was born, so I could, could never have witnessed it myself. But <laughs> did it really go overnight from that outcry model to the electronic screen trading? Was it literally as big as a Big Bang? It really was. You know, we debated and debated it. Could you phase it in? And, and I think in the end, the answer was no. And it started with changes in some of the governor aspects, the membership and whether the division between a broker and a trader should be changed. Once the debate had started, very quickly people got to an end view. So in other words, they said, if we did a small change, that small change would ultimately lead to much bigger change. So therefore, we should have a view to the end game and move to that as quickly as we could. And therefore, it became big bang. I mean, literally, the rules changed on that day. The new systems came in on that day. And, and a number of firms resisted the change. There was a firm called Smith Newcorp who were very big at the time, big floor traders, and they insisted on having all the new systems put on the floor. And, of course, the Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch of this world set up huge trading rooms full of the electronic support they needed. And very quickly, it became apparent who was right. And I think within three or four weeks, Smith Newcourt was moving off the floor. And that was it. So Big Bang started as one day, one event, and quickly, everybody had to then come in line because I think the power of the vision and the power of the change it just meant that you had to get on board. So let's talk about some of the change that you've seen through your career. And the book, which I have to recommend, if only because as someone who's been fascinated by financial markets for a long time, it really is the inside story. It tells you some of the deals, the drama that you just don't get to experience these days or often in a lifetime. And, and you were right there, front row seat. Talk us through some of those snippets from the book, some of the key bits, the pivotal moments that define what we now know today to be the London financial services market. The first, I suppose, pivotal moment was bringing together a number of the key players. Because when I first got involved in indices, it was the Financial Times and the actuaries, the Institute of Actuaries, who, who really determined what the benchmark would look like. And those of a similar age to myself will remember the FT30, which was the index. And the FTSE 100 only came in in 1984. So before that, you had the FT30 and it was the actuaries and the FT who really ran all the benchmarks on which performance benchmark performance measurement took place. 
So you had a world where you then had a stock exchange, which because of Big Bang and because we were moving to a much more electronic way of trading and an electronic future, there was change. And it was moving away from the old published world to an electronic future. And you either could compete with the old world or you could bring the old world into the new ways of working. And what I argued at the exchange is that we would be much more powerful and would be able to create something much bigger if we brought those parties together. So bringing the FT, the actuaries and London Stock Exchange together, I, I think was a huge pivotal moment. And without that, I think it would have been difficult to really build the foundations on which you could build the success of FTSE. But it was not an easy relationship. I mean, all sort of partnerships are difficult. One party always believes it's probably giving up something that it didn't want to give up. And therefore, it was a relationship that took a lot of work to get it to the starting line and took a lot of work to keep it on track. But it was very powerful and it gave us a, a global reach. It enabled us to create fairly quickly a global brand. And with that, the community, the major passive funds, the major investment managers, then got behind and started to support the work that FTSE was doing. And as we built consensus amongst those groups, we became more and more influential because we were not just representing our view, but we were representing the view of London. And as we expanded internationally, we started to represent the view of investors and traders all over the world. And because we were able to build a consensus, people then followed us and we became, by default, the standard in many ways. And I think that was a great sort of unique, if you like, uh, way of working. And it came from, I think, the cultures that existed at both the FT, London Stock Exchange, and of course, helped by the actress. So that was, a, that was a key moment. But then on the journey, as we tried entering markets such as the Middle East, you know, the cultural differences are so big. You know, as we became more influential, governments wanted to ensure that their markets were included in our global benchmarks. So the engagement came, the treasury, the regulators, as well as the stock exchange level. And many of those conversations and decisions, they went far beyond just the financial side because the impact on these economies was so big. And therefore, we had an opportunity to engage with and whether or not we intended it to influence change within countries around the world. And as we did that, we had to learn to build a governance structure that both allowed that to happen but also in many ways protected us. Because when you're making decisions that become as important as that, everybody, all the stakeholders have to have a say. And therefore, your governance arrangements have to become much more robust. You get much more scrutiny by the press. You get much more pressure from different groups. And therefore, more and more as we became bigger, the issue was building out the governance building out the engagement and ensuring that not only did we create remarkably good indices, but actually the decisions we took were ones which were supported by the global client base. So we learned a lot in that journey. 
But it was a fantastic journey. Everyone involved looks back with enormous pride. And it's one of those um, organisations where people from all different times of their involvement, whether they were clients or staff or people helping us along the way, they've all stayed involved and they've all stayed supportive. And you can see that in the book and the way in which some very prominent people have spoken and supported what we achieved and what we did, and most importantly, how we did it. When you talk about bringing all these players together, the actuaries, the FT, the London Stock Exchange, a phrase springs to mind, and that's uh, a camel is designed by a committee. And the reason I say that is because collaboration is easy to say and it's very difficult to do. Now, granted, you had the tailwinds from the Big Bang. You then built momentum with support from the global asset managers and various different governments and regulators around the world. It, It really built momentum fast. But there must have been many knife edge moments. Were there any near misses that you talk about in the book? I think there were many near misses, from small near misses to very large near misses. I think you start by, you have to have a vision that people share in. And we always had a vision to sort of improve investment. And people bought into that and helped that and wanted to be part of that. And then we always tried dealing with issues at the principal level. So even when we first started, there were no total return calculations in the UK or or they were not official. And that's because two different actuarial groups had two different methodologies. And you could argue that both method was correct. But we set down the principle that we wanted a standard and we wanted that standard to be the best. And we set down some principles and we got the actuaries together and we said to the actuaries, you need to come up with that standard. And they had failed to do this for 20 years. But we said, you need to come up with this standard. If not, we will open it up to a broader group in the market and we will have to create that because we need a standard. And they actually then created the environment and went and brought in both of the parties involved. And they got both parties to agree a new and, I have to say, better standard, which we adopted. And I think we took that approach throughout. We knew that when we were bringing in countries and how we classified countries was not good enough. So we set about with the industry trying to define that better standard and then apply it. And we learned as we went. So we made decisions such as the promotion of South Korea into our indices, which even today MSCI hasn't done. But we had to create the standards and then work with the Korean government and stock exchange to get them to change many of their practices. Even the central bank changed many of their practices, their regulations, the way trading took place. And we had to go through and agree that with the market participants until we created something which we thought was a better standard. So I think we took that into many things we did, but we were very clear about the outcome. So people could influence how we achieved it, but we were always very clear about the outcome. And very rarely did that outcome get changed. And a lot of thought went into the outcome, but the outcome was what united people. Because if people bought into that outcome, then bit by bit, we always found a solution. The journey sounds highly collaborative and consultative the whole way through. And with so many different stakeholders, it's no surprise. As an entrepreneur, you've always had an ability to inspire and to influence. 
a critical quality or set of qualities given what you've achieved over the last 35 years. But 35 years on, the index and benchmarking business has come on a long, long way. As you said, some of the big players wield a lot of power these days. What does the future of the index business look like? I'll talk about a few, but maybe I can also, you, you use the word really about the innovation. And that innovation causes a bit of friction. And we did have our, our times of innovation. So you know, there were times when there wasn't consensus. And I think that's where innovation comes in. And we created FTSE for Good, which was one of the first sustainable or, or ESG indices and approaches. And we did that at a time where it was facing a lot of resistance from corporations. Um, so when we launched FTSE for Good in 2001, and we launched it in the UK, very few of the large companies actually met the requirements. So we met huge resistance when we did that. But we believed that it was the right thing. Similarly, when we went into China, because we believed that China was important, we met huge resistance there from the Chinese regulators who first were uncomfortable that there was an international player influence in their market, but also outside China, where people were not ready, really, to include China in their global portfolios. So there were moments when, as you say, you, you can't always be led just by consensus, but you have to be careful as to when you challenge that. And, you know, the innovation has to be there and the belief has to be there to do those things. And I think that's been an important part of the journey as well, because without taking those risks, I think FTSE would have been half or a third the size and influence that it is today. So that's an important part of that future. So the future of indexing, I think that has many of those same challenges. You know, if I fast forward in what may be five, seven, 10 years, yeah, today, active management is probably 70% of the equity investment and passive is probably 30%. That will flip and the same will happen to fixed income. We will see a flip from active majority to a passive majority. And that's almost certain to happen. And there were two things behind indices which have driven that so far. What's happened is indexation isn't about just passively investing in the market. Indices now replicate every investment strategy. So all they are is a systematic approach to an investment strategy. But what they do is they give you transparency and they give you lower cost. Lower cost because they're more data-driven than people-driven. And it's those two things, the transparency of the lower cost and the ability to just replicate any investment strategy means that more and more investors are adopting indices rather than active management to gain exposure. Exposure in all kinds of ways, whether it's the whole market, an industry sector, particular factors. And that's been an important change. But I think those things are almost a given. The future will be about flexibility and choice. And choice because technology means that the index providers will be able to give you any investment strategy across the whole range of asset classes and, in a way, choices on asset allocation. But they'll also allow you to customise for your particular ESG concerns, governance concerns, social concerns. So that flexibility and choice 
will mean that you will have millions of indices, far more indices than there will be stocks. And the winners will be the ones who can not just provide that choice, but have the brand and the visibility so that people can know that they can trust that provider and can get what they want that has all those elements, the transparency, the low cost, the flexibility, and knowing that they are well run and trusted to do the right thing. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week, so we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning, and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. So, Mark, I want to come back to ESG in a moment, but before we come back to it, you know, we're talking about the shift from active management to passive management. And a lot of what's promoting that shift is innovation and technology. And if we think about one of those big trends was the trend towards robo-advice. Five, 10 years ago, asset managers were fearful. Robo-advice seemed to be something that could disrupt the industry an enormous amount. And when you boil down what robo-advice is, it's ultimately just the concept of capturing an investor's preferences and then converting that information into a target asset allocation and rebalancing towards that target. And now we see asset managers all around the world using robo-advice techniques and technologies internally to rebalance those portfolios on a passive level. What other technology trends do you think are playing a big role in the industry and underpinning that shift? I think they're very similar. I think what changes, though, and COVID has also highlighted this, is we're moving much quicker to a digital world. And I don't mean digital marketing. I mean digital engagement. And therefore, that opens up possibilities that weren't there before. The ability to engage in a mass scale, either with the end investor or with important intermediaries who manage important sort of relationships with those end investors. And I think the index providers will service both. And providing the flexibility, and that's where your robo-advisor comes in, it's an engagement where the index providers will allow the end investors, almost within a sort of sandpit, be able to ask questions, conduct sort of analysis, and work out what's best for them. But using building blocks that to date have only really been available to institutional investors and professionals. I see a future where much greater choice, but more choice brings complexity. And therefore, I think the communication and the engagement will become more and more important. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think if we jump back to ESG for a moment, you spoke about the FTSE for Good Index. That was set up nearly 20 years ago, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. I mean, that foresight you and the team had is remarkable and actually probably quite risky at the time. It really mm-hmm. takes, I think, bold pioneers to see and have a vision to execute against something so forward-thinking. Today, ESG is a hugely talked-about topic. Environment, social, governance aspects of companies permeating every corner of the commercial ecosystem, and not just in public companies, but also in private companies. How do we measure, assess, and improve the ESG withstandings of companies of every size? It's a responsibility I think every business that's operational has. 
What other ESG trends do you see that are going to shape the way that the capital markets ecosystem evolves? The trend we're in now is really about climate change and understanding the impact of climate change. And that's been very widely adopted. And you see that in so many ways. You see that in terms of how it's affecting people's views on energy, different types of energy, but also views on the sustainability of some of the energy sources. People have stopped thinking that we will use up all of the oil that's available in the world. People are beginning to think, well, actually, we'll replace some of these energy sources in the future. So we will probably never get there. And that immediately has an impact on your valuation of companies. So I think climate change in lots of different ways has really driven a lot of the ESG investments today. I think COVID will have an impact, which is much more about social. And we're only just at the beginning of the trend towards the social issues, whether you think about that in terms of gender diversity, a more broader diversity, whether you're thinking about that in terms of tax arrangements of companies. But we're only at the beginning of the social side. I think the environment is well established. The governance, more and more attention is being paid to that. But I do think on governance, we may see, because of what we're seeing with tech companies, with controlling shareholders, I think there has to be a debate about what the right balance is there. Because otherwise, we will see more and more companies remain in private markets rather than the public markets. So there has to be a debate there. But the social issues to me will be the issues which will grow in the next five, seven years. And they will come to the fore largely because of COVID and largely because of the changes that will happen. Governments have taken on more debt. Technology will mean that we will see the gap between the well-off and others widen. Therefore, I think these social issues will become more and more important. So companies themselves will have to manage not just to the requirements of shareholders, but to all stakeholders. And I do see ESG almost becoming the norm because it will be about how every company understands and manages its issues and exposures with all of its stakeholders. I mean, that's really the future. You've hit the nail on the head there. That risk management also becomes a huge value creation lever. You see, particularly in the private equity industry, LPs have been asking their general partners that they invest in for ESG assessments for a long, long time. But the standardization and the methodologies aren't yet up to speed. There's a huge amount of duplication in the market as well. So I think we're going to see a number of efficiencies happen, both in terms of practicing ESG, as well as efficiencies within the ESG sector itself, as we see a number of the different standards consolidate. That's an important point, because I think we're at a stage where having competing standards is a good thing, because the opinions are still evolving. And we will see, you know, and we have got standards, SASB is just one, GOI is another, PRI is another. There's lots of standards there. The EU is trying to create more standards. But the problem is we're in a world that's moving very quickly. And I think you need competition between providers so that we end up with something that evolves quickly to meet the needs and opinions that are only just being formed. And I think that's particularly important when you think of the next generation. The next generation have very different opinions 
to the current generation, which has most of the wealth. That wealth will transfer to the next generation. And that next generation has very different views on the environment and social issues. And we'll need to evolve to that. And I do think you need competition. You can't have governments and quasi-governmental organisations just set standards. The standards very quickly become out of date. And having commercial providers who are competing, I think, will provide better standards. But it will be a competition of which two or three will win out. And we've got to go through that process. Mark, I'd like to use probably the remaining few minutes to talk about an area of the industry that's recent years become highly talked about, particularly as asset managers seek to lower the costs that they face in the business, and that's self-indexing. So obviously, self-indexing requires huge prowess and strength in, in data management, because ultimately, that's what an index being built requires. It requires an environment of data that you can then customize. But how hard is it? And how much do you see self-indexing becoming a mainstay in the sector? I think self-indexing will almost become the norm. But I think there's two reasons for self-indexing. And I think the fund managers that are self-indexing because they want to differentiate and maintain their margins, I don't think that will succeed. And the reason I say that Mm -hmm. is the benefits people are looking for is, yes, choice. But what they also want is the low cost. And if you use self-indexing and you're still providing it at a higher cost, there may be some short-term benefits, but I think in the sort of medium term, you will eventually lose out. So I don't think that's a viable strategy for self-indexing. And most self-indexing today is doing that. If you actually look at ETFs on which self-indexing supports, you'll find the fees on those ETFs generally, not always, but generally are higher than many of the other ETFs. So self-indexing isn't necessarily about lower costs and lower fees. Um, Self-indexing, which provides you choice and low fees, I think will take off. And I think the index providers have got to learn to provide the tools and the data sets that mean self-indexing is available to a much greater community than today. Because if for self-indexing, you have to set up your own database, your own technology, your own tools, your own distribution channels, you're spending more on creating that environment than you benefit from just paying some of the standard index providers. So I, I think it's the index providers themselves have to change their model and provide much greater choice and the tools that allow the end investors and the intermediaries who serve those end investors with the tools to be able to provide that choice, but it needs to be at low cost. And the low cost element needs to be seen in the fees that the end investors are paying. That's why I love doing this podcast. I get to learn so much. I feel like I've just had a masterclass in self-indexing. Before we get to the end, Mark, I always like to ask leaders, particularly people who have built businesses, about talent and leadership. They're two topics that at Motor Partners we take very seriously and we spend a lot of time thinking about. Ultimately, the next generation are our future. So what are some of the best lessons in talent and leadership that you've learned throughout your corporate and entrepreneurial journey? I've always thought the most important skills come to actually be listening. 
and being able to delegate and inspire others. I think leadership has changed. You know, when I started work, leaders and the tools available to leaders were very different. So the leaders would show you how to do something. They would keep a lot of the responsibility and, and you had to sort of constantly report back to them. It was frustrating if you looked at it from today's point of view. I think the leaders of today and the leaders of tomorrow is much more about their ability to engage, their ability to not just inspire, but their ability to create what I would say is followership. Leaders need to be able to paint a picture of the future and paint it in such a way as people can understand as to how you get there and have the personality and the skill sets to have people follow them on that journey. But it becomes a journey that you never, ever get there because your goals and the picture of the future keep changing and they keep evolving. But it's that ability to take people on a journey and to have people follow you. It's no longer about your ability to either know more than somebody else or to be able to do something it's about your ability to influence others. And I think more and more in a digital world post-COVID, it's those skills which will become the most important. And in the world we live in today, particularly the communication skills that are required to clearly articulate what that vision is and to continue to bring the people on the journey. You can't mm. tell someone a vision statement and sit back and hope it happens. It's a constant iteration and requires huge energy, doesn't it? It does. And it can't just be the leader's vision. It's got to become the group's vision. The leader has got to help shape that. And in many ways, good leaders are always thinking, where do I take that vision to next? Now, how far can I take it now? And where do I go next? Because it is about that journey. And that's what I say about followership. It's about a journey. And the leader's got to keep thinking ahead and challenging himself and making sure they're exposed to views and, and what's happening so that they can help shape a common vision that people will want to join that leader on that journey. And again, post-COVID, we are in a digital world where engagement becomes far more important than just communication. It is a world where I think strong leaders with strong followership will create enormously powerful and valuable companies. So speaking of where to go next and painting that vision of the future, we've spoken a lot today, Mark, about the future of the industry that you've operated in, but we haven't spoken about your future. What are you spending your time on? Where's Mark going to focus next? I think this is a tremendously exciting time because there's so much change and because there's uncertainty. You know, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about the way passive and active is changing. But this is an exciting time of change. And the future, because of that change, has so many opportunities. I think I'm one of those people that just wants to be in that discussion, in that debate, and trying to help shape that future. So to me, it's you're seeing the investment world change, you're seeing the data and technology world change, and all of those things are coming together. You know, data technology is changing investment. That is incredibly exciting. I think the opportunities are enormous, and I want to be a part of that. So hopefully as I get back into the industry, then in 2021, we can have another podcast and we can talk about what that means and particularly what that means for me. 
Mark, thank you so much. I've looked forward to this for a long time. I'm halfway through the book, so we may well have to do another podcast when I finish the book and we can explore some of the hard to answer questions that I've got in mind. But thank you. Thank you for your insights, talking about the future of finance. And I'm looking forward to what 2021 holds for many reasons, but most importantly, to undercover where where you're focusing your energy on next. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sam, and hope you enjoy the book. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.